This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on December 28, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... When we talk about a psychopath, we're talking about someone with a distinct set of personality characteristics, um, and that can predispose you to great success uh, in certain fields or professions. That's Kevin Dutton. He's a psychologist at the Calava Research Center for Evolution and Human Science at the University of Oxford. And his latest book is The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success. And what's coming up next is part one of a multi-part psychopath extravaganza. The first two parts are me talking with Dutton, who recently dropped by the Scientific American offices. And then we'll hear a conversation between Dutton and everyone's favorite psychopath, Dexter. Actor Michael C. Hall was interrogated by Dutton in October at the Rubin Museum of Art here in New York City. And the museum kindly shared the audio of that discussion with us. Here's part one. Can we define some terms to start out? We, the word psychopath gets used a lot in the popular culture, but what do we actually mean clinically? Yeah, it's true, isn't it? I mean, no sooner is, is the word psychopath out than, uh, than images of, of Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy come creeping across our minds. But actually, when psychologists talk about psychopaths, we're talking about someone with a distinct set of personality characteristics. So these characteristics are ruthlessness, fearlessness, mental toughness, charm, uh, manipulation ability, persuasiveness, and of course, lack of, uh, lack of empathy and conscience. Um, now notice I didn't say violence there, and I didn't say intelligence. Now, uh, those kinds of, uh, of variables, violence and intelligence, um, aren't necessarily linked with psychopathy at all. So a lot of people think that uh, if you're violent, uh, you know, that, that, that qualifies you to be a psychopath. Actually, a heck of a lot of psychopaths aren't violent at all. Now, if you've got those kind of characteristics that I just mentioned there, and you are also violent, and you are also uh, not very intelligent, uh, then to be perfectly frank, your prospects aren't going to be that good. You're going to end up putting a bottle over someone's head in a bar, and you're going to get banged up in prison uh, for 30 years. But if you've got those psychopathic characteristics, and you are not naturally violent, and you are also very intelligent, you go to a good school and you get a good education, then you're more likely, as the famous Reuters headline once put it, to, to uh, make a killing in the market. Uh, uh, rather than anywhere else. So when we talk about a psychopath, we're talking about someone with a distinct set of personality characteristics in their personality cupboard. Um, and that can predispose you to great success uh, in certain fields or professions, uh, depending also on, on natural aggression levels and also intelligence levels. And a prime example, I mean, here in the United States, we're seeing some traits of psychopathy on our TV sets daily. I mean, a lot of these very successful politicians clearly have some of the constellation of traits that you would associate with psychopathy. 
You know, uh, a, a famous British politician, uh, quite a well-known one, who shall obviously remain nameless for the sake of this interview, uh, summed it up really, really succinctly to me when I was writing, uh, doing my research for Wisdom of Psychopaths. He said, the only way you can tell who's stabbing you from behind, stabbing you in the back, is to see his reflection in the eyes of the person stabbing you from the front. Uh, and that basically sums up what, what UK politics is all about. I don't know what US politics is like, but, uh, but uh, I've kind of got a brief impression from watching uh, watching a little bit of uh, on the on the telly but you know those kinds of traits the kinds of things that politicians have to do um, when they're in office, um, I mean, they have to face crises, uh, everything from threats from rogue uh, dictators, rogue states to natural disasters like hurricanes and floods. You know, you've got to be pretty mentally tough. If you're knocked back by the simplest little thing, you're not going to make a very good head of state or a very good leader or indeed a, a very good politician, uh, even on a, on a lower level. Uh, you've got to be very confident in order to be able to run for office in the first place. Um, you've got to be very good at self-presentation skills. You've got to be able to give the impression uh, that you are uh, listening to other people, that it really means something to you, even when perhaps uh, you know, you're know you working more from a self-interest point of view uh, than anything else. And I think it was Theodore Roosevelt that said that the most successful politician is the person who says most loudly and most often what's in the other person's, what's in everyday, the everyday person's mind. And I think actually, you know, that that kind of ability to present yourself, to be confident, to be mentally tough, um, to not be uh, knocked back too much by uh, by, by um, uh, setbacks, um, I think of, is very important in politics. And um, so it's not surprising that um, that uh, that psychopathic characteristics do show up uh, to, uh, to to quite a large extent in in the in this political sphere. Yeah, for, I mean, just the, the willingness to send other people into battle, uh, requires a kind of cold, calculating ruthlessness that I don't think most people have. Absolutely. And you've got to be able to, 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 to distance yourself from that, you know, to actually send people into battle uh, with the distinct possibility that they're going to die and they're not going to come back to see their families again. And knowing that you are responsible for that. I mean, if you were in any way, um, you know, if you had too much empathy, if you had too much um, of, of, of compassion uh, for other people, then, you know, that obviously would play on your mind to such an extent that you couldn't do that. So you you need to be able to 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 compartmentalize. You need to be able to do the job to to kind of uh, decouple um, those more compassionate emotions from your decision making, um, and 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 that's very important in politics. I think what what one of the interesting things, one of the things that separates out functional or successful psychopaths from the unsuccessful psychopaths or criminal uh, psychopaths, uh, should we say, is um, is impulsivity. Now, uh, the politicians also have the ability to delay gratification, to put off reward, to focus on the long-term plan, uh, especially when the whole election campaign here lasts for, for you know, over a year. Sometimes, you know, I think it's nearly two years, isn't it, uh, from the word go. So the ability to delay gratification and to focus on long-term rewards 
is something that very good politicians do have. And in the kinds of research that I do, we've looked at what separates out functional and successful psychopaths. And actually, it's that impulsivity dial on the mixing desk. If you look at um, psychopathic characteristics as being the dials on a studio mixing desk, which can all be turned up and down in various combinations, so ruthlessness, fearlessness, and all those uh, kinds of uh, characteristics I was telling you about. As if they were bass, treble, and uh, those kinds of features on a graphic equalizer. Absolutely right. So if you if you crank all of those up to max, then you're going to overload the circuit. Okay, you're going to wind up getting thirty years inside. Uh, but if you turn all of them, some of them, some of them up high and some of them down low, depending on the circumstances. Um, then you become, as it were, what I call a method psychopath, uh, like a method actor, and you you are predisposed to success in various fields of endeavour and various professions. Now, the one crucial dial on that mixing desk, on that graphic equaliser, is impulsivity. Now, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that if you have that impulsivity dial cranked up high not necessarily on max, but cranked up high, then that's one of the things that tips you over the border between successful and unsuccessful. If you have that impulsivity dial turned down low and you've got the other dials turned up high, then you're more likely to be successful with a psychopathic personality. Impulsivity makes a hell of a difference. And coming back to the politicians, uh, politicians who uh, are able to keep that impulsivity dial turned down low to focus on the long game rather than the short game, the immediate self-interest, uh, those are the guys that, that actually are, do make quite good politicians. As opposed to n- not necessarily great leaders, but good politicians. That's right. I think that, I mean, again, these psychopathic traits um, can predispose to to great leadership. I mean, um, I I take one example uh, from the UK, Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill is quite high on what I call the psychopathic spectrum. I think one of the key things here that we need to we need to flag up right from the beginning uh, is the fact that, uh, you know, uh, being a psychopath is not a black or white matter. It's not an all or nothing affair. Um, In fact, let's read. You have a quote from Churchill at the beginning of one of your chapters. Let's uh, let me find that. Yeah, the Winston Churchill quote. It's right at the beginning of chapter one. Although your uh, your preface is is I know a lot of people skip prefaces. You shouldn't skip the preface in this book. Great and good are seldom the same man is what Winston Churchill said. So he was clearly willing to not be good in order to be great in his own mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the things, one of the reasons why I why I wrote the book is is to debunk the myth that psychopathy is an all or nothing affair. It's either black or white. Now, uh, psychopathy, like any other personality characteristic or set of characteristics, is on a dimension. Uh, and we are all at some point along that dimension. So, um, you know, another way of looking at it is to think of psychopathy um, as being like the zones on a shooting target. OK, so um, uh, some of us, uh, we're, 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 we all land somewhere on that shooting target, but only a tiny minority fall within the bullseye. OK, so um, just as say, um, you know, there's no official dividing line between someone who, who, who plays the piano and a concert pianist, for instance, or between someone who plays tennis and a, a, a Rafa and a Dalla or a Roger Federer. Um, so there's the frontier between a, a, a kind of so-called world-class psychopath and someone who merely psychopathizes, um, is similarly blurred. Now, 
Um, I think if you are too far along the psychopathic spectrum, if you are right up there in the red zone, then you're not going to be a good leader at all. Okay, but if you are quite quite far along on the psychopathic spectrum, in certain situations, like for instance in a war situation, for instance, uh, and Churchill, of course, within you know presided over the British troops during the Second World War, um, you can actually you know have quite an effect. You can be a great charismatic motivator. Um, you know, in the heat of battle, sometimes you do have to be fearless. You do have to be ruthless. Um, so leaders that are quite high on the psychopathic spectrum are better in those kinds of conditions. Um, it's interesting, actually, uh, talking about uh, about leaders is in and, and, and war situations. The the origin of the word berserk. Uh, incidentally comes from the Vikings and the Vikings had um, uh, uh, a group of uh, uh, elite uh, soldiers I suppose you could call them the special forces of the of the Viking world uh, called the berserkers and the berserkers uh, fought in a trance-like fury um, and were no doubt responsible for the Vikings fierce reputation as uh, as Norse Norse warriors the problem with with the berserkers was what you did with them in peacetime because during times of war, they were absolutely the, the, the you know, the difference between the Viking armies and, and, and surrounding armies. But they turned against their own people in peacetime. They, they couldn't assuage that, that, that bloodlust that they had. And so that was the tax that you had to pay on them for being such great fighters in wartime. Now, clearly, you can train somebody so that you adjust the dials on the equalizer. I mean, that's in in many ways, that's what boot camp in the military is all about, to enable people to either get in touch with certain of these tendencies, like being cold-blooded or being ruthless, um, to get in touch with them, to uh, become used to them. So what what can people who read the book, what can they take away that they can apply in their own lives to access some of these traits that might be beneficial without becoming Ted Bundy. Well, psychopaths um, in everyday life, if I'm talking about, you know, what kinds of, of characteristics serve, what kind of psychopathic characteristics serve uh, people well in everyday life? Well, psychopaths are assertive. Psychopaths don't procrastinate. Uh, psychopaths focus on the positives. Uh, psychopaths don't take things personally. They don't beat themselves up when things go wrong. And they're very cool under pressure. So let me give you a couple of examples, perhaps, of how you might be able to use those traits in everyday situations. Um, let's say you're at work and you want to put in for a raise. Okay, now a lot of people are frightened of putting in for a raise because they're frightened of what happens when they don't get it. They're frightened of what their boss might think of them. They're frightened about what their fellow employees might think of them. Uh, and they get embarrassed. Okay, well, you know, the, the answer to that is if you really want to get that raise, psychopath up. Focus on the positives. Don't focus on the negatives. Uh, just think about the benefits of getting it. And of course, that makes you more confident and it actually makes you more likely to get that raise in the first place. Okay, another one, um, the Nike slogan, just do it. That's a very psychopathic slogan. Psychopaths do not procrastinate. They do not sit there thinking about, well, what might go wrong here? You know, what? well, I don't really know if I should do this or not. Next time you're putting off, I don't know, a boring task like, uh, like, like filing that report, for instance, just stop and ask yourself a question. You know, um, since when did I need to feel like doing something in order to do it? So just do it. You know, psych a psychopath wouldn't sit there procrastinating. Psychopaths are very energetic. They're very positive. They would just do it anyway. 
So there's a couple of examples of, of, of how you can utilize a harness a psychopathic mindset uh, within within everyday life. I'm actually bringing out a paper very shortly called The Psychopath Manifesto, in which there are 10 commandments of psychopathy, uh, which everyday people can use uh, in their lives to, 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 to make themselves a little bit more successful. There's some material in the book that's really fascinating about the physiological state of a psychopath versus a non-psychopath in a in pressure situations. Yeah, there's um, psychopaths. Um, we know that uh, one of the reasons why they're extremely cool under pressure, why they're emotionally detached, uh, is because their brains are wired up in a in a different way uh, to the rest of ours. Especially the the uh, emotional control center of the brain, which is a little uh, structure about the size of your thumbnail, uh, called the amygdala, which is located right in the center of your brain. Now, let me give you a little example here. I'll give you a little diagram dilemma which can really tease apart these uh, the, the, the way that the uh, the psychopath uh, thinks uh, compared to the rest of us uh, imagine uh, that you've got a train and it's hurtling down a track okay now uh, in its path five people are trapped on the line uh, who cannot escape but fortunately you can flick a switch which diverts the train uh, down a fork in the track but at a price away from those five people but at a price there is another person trapped down that line and the train will kill them instead should you flick the switch now most people have little trouble deciding what to do under those circumstances though the the thought of flicking the switch isn't exactly a nice one um, the utilitarian utilitarian choice killing just the one person instead of the five represents the least worst option okay but now let's have um, a, a little variation on that let's call this case two just like before you've got a train speeding out of control down a track towards five people but this time you are standing behind a very large stranger on a footbridge above the track. The only way to save the people is to heave that stranger over. He will fall to a certain death, but his considerable bolt will block the train saving uh, the five people, should you flick the switch. Now, what we've got here, you might say, is a real dilemma on our hands, okay? J just like before, the score in lives is exactly the same, five to one. But one's choice of action appears far trickier. Now, why should that be? Well, the reason, it turns out, all boils down to temperature. OK, case one represents what we might call an impersonal dilemma. It involves those areas of the brain, uh, the prefrontal cortex, the posterior parietal cortex, in particular, uh, the anterior paracingulate cortex, the temporal pole and the superior temporal sulcus. Okay, bit of neuroanatomy for you there. <laughs> and you know this because you've done brain scans of people as they're being confronted with this question. That's exactly right, yeah, well, and which, which we'll come on to in a minute. Now, those centers are primarily responsible for what we call cold empathy, okay, for reasoning and rational thought. Case two represents what we might call a personal moral dilemma. Now, that involves the emotion center of the brain, the uh, the amygdala that I was telling you about just a few moments ago, the circuitry of what we call hot empathy, the feeling of feeling what another person is feeling. Now, psychopaths, uh, just like most normal members of the population, have no trouble at all with case one. They flick the switch and the train diverts accordingly, killing just the one person instead of the five. But, and here's where the plot thickens, quite unlike normal members of the population, psychopaths also experience little difficulty with case two. 
Psychopaths without a moment's hesitation are perfectly happy to chuck the fat guy over the rails if that's what the doctor orders. Moreover, this difference in uh, behavior has a distinct neural signature. Uh, the pattern of brain activation uh, in normal people and psychopaths is precisely the same on the presentation of the impersonal moral dilemma, but radically different when things start to get a bit more personal. Now, imagine if I were to hook you up to a brain scanner, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and were to then present you with the two dilemmas. What would I observe as you went about trying to solve them? Well, at the precise moment that the nature of the dilemma switches from impersonal to personal, I would see the emotion center of your brain and related circuits, the medial orbitofrontal cortex, for example, light up like a pinball machine. But in psychopaths, I would see nothing. The passage from impersonal to personal would slip by unnoticed. There is no one at home. There is a neural curfew in those uh, in those emotion neighborhoods in the brain surrounding the amygdala. How do we know that such theoretical, uh, hypothetical situations really translate into the real world, though? If if these same people who are being studied in the brain scan situation were really faced with a question like that, do we know that the, what we've learned in the clinic is actually going to be the same thing that we see in real life? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look in terms of, it's a good question, I think when we look in terms of things that we find uh, in the brain uh, and when we when we give people lab tasks, I mean, we have to have faith that, that actually the same kinds of brain states would actually translate into everyday life. We we have no absolute proof, of course, because, you know, we, we you know, fMRI machines, of course, are very, very big, bulky bits of equipment and we, <laughs> we can't wheel them around, uh, you know, at, to, to scenes of, of impending disaster. Um, uh, but um, I think that, uh, I mean, it's very interesting, actually. It's slightly off topic, but to, to answer that question, I mean, one psychopath who I interviewed posed a very, very interesting dilemma. And I did say that psychopaths man- were manipulative. And this guy said, you know, uh, imagine if you've got a deaf person, okay, and you've got uh, a child in a burning building. And you've got that child screaming out. He says, uh, but the deaf person can't hear the screams. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't necessarily blame, you wouldn't hold that deaf person culpable, uh, for that child's death if the child died. Uh, and he said, well, uh, by the same token, if you are emotionally deaf, if you can physically hear the screams, but emotionally you just don't have that kind of neural kick up the backside to go in and save that child, isn't that the same thing? And when you start thinking about that, there's a whole kind of moral conundrum that starts coming out of that because damage to the ear is damage to a physical structure. Damage to the brain is also damage to a physical structure. So both have impacts on the behavior that that, that the person uh, conducts, but obviously with different ramifications. Yeah, you've opened up the the gigantic can of worms that's going to be confronting uh, legal proceedings in coming years as brain scans become uh, more and more present in courtrooms. The whole question of culpability and intent is is really going to get even hairier than it is now. Well, there's a whole uh, new subdiscipline uh, which is beginning to emerge as a, as a result of the courts taking more interest uh, in the findings of of, uh, of cognitive neuroscience, and it's called neuro law, and it's uh, it's a real cross section between neuroscience and forensic science. Um, 
Now, the test case occurred a few years ago. I think it was in Utah with a guy called Bradley Waldrop um, who um, committed an atrocious murder. He, um, he killed his wife's friend uh, and uh, and also attempted to uh, to, to, to kill his, uh, his wife, but she survived. Um, and in Utah, um, you have the death penalty. Um, so this becomes a matter of quite grave importance now. Now, uh, uh, Waldrop was indicted, obviously, on a, on a count of murder and, uh, and attempted murder. And um, his defense attorney uh, put him on the stand and, uh, and asked him uh, whether he had a particular variation of a gene, an MAR, uh, MAOI inhibitor gene, uh, which the media now term the warrior gene. Um, which short versions of this uh, genetic polymorphism um, actually uh, make you uh, quite uh, give you a, quite a, a high probability of turning into a violent criminal, uh, but only if you are abused or suffer a violent childhood. Uh, long versions of the gene protect you against becoming uh, a violent criminal, even when you are subjected uh, to, uh, to to abuse as a child. So anyway, Bradley Waldrop standing there on the uh, on the in the uh, in the courtroom, and his defence attorney says, uh, "Do you have the uh, the uh, uh, short version of the MAOI inhibitor gene?" Um, yes, I do," replied Waldrop. Obviously, the defence attorney had obviously done the test beforehand. Um, he then asked Waldrop whether he uh, had been abused as a child. The answer was yes. So the argument then became, well, uh, my client has the genetic polymorphism uh, responsible for uh, turning him into a violent criminal. Uh, if he's abused as a child, he, is a, he was abused as a child. Uh, therefore, isn't his free will eroded relative to people that don't have that gene and weren't abused as a child? Well, the argument was enough to commute uh, a death sentence to a life sentence. Uh, and the basic argument in a nutshell is, if you're not free to choose your genes and you're not free to choose your environment, are we free to choose at all? Now, I, I predict a raft of cases um, just like this one now beginning to emerge um, as a result of this, this emerging subdiscipline of neuro law. should be very interesting to see uh, how the courts decide and how they rule on these kinds of situations. That's it for part one. Kevin Dutton's book is called The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success. You can get it as your free audiobook by taking advantage of the offer at www.audible.com slash Siam. We'll be right back with part two. <laughs> 